Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. gathered together this morning. Hopefully you've already been encouraged, uh, worshiping Jesus together, singing. And uh, before we jump into the Word, I want to give you a little update on our campus over on Strickland Road. Uh, what's going on over there is that here's what I want you to do. Mark your calendar for this Saturday. And uh, if you already have plans this Saturday, I hope you'll change them. And uh, this Saturday, we're having a work day over at the campus, uh, cleaning out some landscaping, spreading some mulch. And from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m., just show up. You don't need to RSVP. You don't need to tell anybody you're coming. If you want extra donuts there, grab some donuts on your way, show up. Uh, we're going to be having a group of folks coming in from Dallas, Texas, a church that I was connected with there, and there's going to be some guys that are going to be there doing some work already, and we're going to come alongside them and trim some hedges and pull some stuff out and clean some stuff up, and so we're moving closer to being able to launch over there, and, and just one thing too, some of you are praying. I had asked you a few weeks ago, I said, pray, here's the next thing going, there's a big deal for us, pray for the uh, city review of some electrical stuff that had gotten changed, and some of y'all were really praying. So whoever was really praying, keep doing that, because let me tell you what happened. This week, the inspector came over to talk to us about what needed to be reviewed, and he said, ah, we don't have to send that through the city, we'll just figure it out out here. So keep doing that, that's awesome news, okay? And so yeah, that's the good news. And uh, work keeps being done over there. They had the youth retreat this weekend, the fall youth retreat over there, and used uh, four out of the five buildings over there are ready to be used. And the women's Bible study started over there. Celebrate Recovery was there this week. And so we're transitioning over that way. And before long, we're going to be having Sundays over there. But you just keep praying and show up this Saturday between 8 and 2. And so you're like, I can't make it by 8. Come at 10. Come at noon. Come at 2. I'm sure there's still stuff to do. You know, it'd be awesome. Um, we'd love to have you over there. And so that's what's happening with that. And then today, we're going to jump back into the book of John. Uh, John chapter 16, we left off last week in verse 15. We're going to pick up in verse 16 today. And so let me pray for us, and uh, we'll open up the scriptures together. Father, thank you for being here and for meeting with us. And uh, last week we talked about your Holy Spirit. Thank you that your Holy Spirit indwells uh, so many people that uh, attend this church. And God, I pray that you'd use that to help people sense your Spirit when they come here that we'd be filled with your spirit, we wouldn't quench the spirit. I pray the same for myself right now as I go to preach your word. Uh, remove any distractions uh, that are in my mind, and God, will you just flow through me? Let me be your vessel to speak to folks here. You know exactly what they need to hear. You know what's going on in somebody's life that's on one side of the room versus the other side of the room. There's somebody that's listening online five years from now. God, you've got all that figured out, and God, will you use, by the power of your Holy Spirit, will you use the words that I'll say to transform lives? I pray that you'd encourage souls that are maybe grieving and going through a low point in life, and I pray that you would fan the flame of those that are at a high point in life, and God, I, I just pray, God, that you'd walk with us and be evident to us and change us as we open up your scripture. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we live in a time of tension. We live in a world of tension. Uh, some of you are parents, and so you know what the tension can be like with your kids. Have you ever had parents, a situation where your kids did something and it was wrong and it was bad, but to you it was hilarious. <laughs> and you had to fight that tension of laughing at them while you're trying to discipline them. A couple weeks ago, my daughter did something out in the driveway, said some things that my wife didn't want her to say in front of some of the neighbors. And my wife did what any, you know, if you've got a husband at home and, and you're at your wit's end and you don't know what to do with these kids, you know what the highest level of discipline is, go talk to your father. And so I was inside the house and my daughter had said something. And my wife sent her inside, and she came in. I was standing in my bedroom. She walked up to me. She started to tell me what she said. Now, sometimes it's funny because they remind you of yourself. 
Sometimes it's their creativity. You're like, where'd they get that? And sometimes they're like wittier than you or whatever. And it's like all that happened in the same moment for me with this one. And, and she told me what she said. And I knew that mom thought it was terrible. And so in order to not actually start laughing in her face, I turned my back on her. I started walking away. I'm calling an audible at that moment. I don't know what to do. And so I said, I'm going to go in the bathroom and think about what to do with you, which meant I'm going to go in the bathroom and laugh my head off. And so I walk into the bathroom, and then my wife, she must have been listening in the other room because she said, Scott, that's not funny. Like she knew I was laughing in the bathroom. And I'm thinking in the bathroom, actually it is. It is pretty funny, but I don't want her to do it again, so I'm just going to hang out in here for a little while. You know, tension, tension is when you're pulled in two directions at the same time. And you're pulling two directions at the same time. Like, I know that as a good dad, I don't want her to keep doing that, and so i got to discipline her. But I think it's hilarious, which just reveals probably my own sinful nature, right, as that's happening. And so there's tension in that. And parents, you got tension all the time. Like, you got little kids, you know, sometimes it's like, don't ever let them sleep on their stomach. And then, like, six months later, it's like, put them on their stomach or they won't be geniuses. And it's like, all these things change. And, you know, you've got to feed them kale every, every day if you want them to get into Harvard. And then it's like, kale's going to kill them. Don't do that ever again. And just stuff's changing all the time. So there's always this tension. Like, what's the right thing to do as you're parenting? How much time's too much screen time? But I need them, I need some alone time. And it's like, all this stuff's going on in, in life. And that's just parenting. If you're married, think about marital tension that takes place. Just simple daily stuff. Like, you both want to buy something. And unless you have unlimited resources, you've probably had this tension. You both want to buy something. There's only so much money. How do you decide? You both want to buy something different. Tension. Or you get in a fight with each other. And you sin. there's two sinful people in any relationship. So whether you're married or a friendship or dating or roommates or whatever it is, coworkers. Two sinners get put together. Somebody sins against the other one. That's just what happens. Now, what are you going to do? Get bitter? Forgive? Just let that one go, let it build up. Like, there's lots of options, and that's what creates the tension. You think about your calendars. How many of you here have more things to do than you have time to do it? Don't raise your hand. Don't discourage the one person who doesn't have that. <laughs> We've all got, there's like tension everywhere in this world. Racial tension, political tension. You can cut the political tension with like a knife. There's tension everywhere, all the time in our worlds. I read some statistics this week about the stress levels that we have. It says three out of four doctor visits are stress-related. <laughs> stress is the cause of 60% of all human illnesses and disease. That's what I read. 40% of stressed people overeat or eat unhealthy food. 44% of stressed people lose sleep every night. And you're like, I was going to the doctor this week about how, why I'm not sleeping and I'm eating so much unhealthy food in the middle of the night. Yeah, you're stressed. But today what I want to talk to you about is not just stress in general, tension that happens, racial tension, political tension. I want to talk to you about a specific tension that happens when you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm not really talking to you today. I'm glad that you're here. You can listen in. I'm going to talk to you about how you can be a follower of Jesus at the end of the message. But really, this is kind of like a family talk, and we're glad that you're here. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got a unique tension in this world. And the tension I'm talking about is not, what is it, how do I do what's right in a world that Everyone just does what's right in their own eyes. That's a tension. That's not what we're talking about today. Here's the tension I'm talking about today. It's the tension of you read stuff in your Bible, and then you go, that doesn't seem like it's real, but yet I know that it's true. It's a tension that theologians call this, the already not yet. There's things that are already true that have been accomplished at the cross of Christ through the resurrection of Jesus, but you're not yet fully experiencing them. Let me give you some examples. You read Ephesians chapter 1. It talks about who you are in Christ. It talks about your identity in Christ. It's a great passage of Scripture. It says that we're seated in the heavenly realms. 
Oh, really? I didn't know there were dirty dishes in the heavenly realms. I didn't know diapers still needed to be changed in the heavenly realms. It didn't feel like the heavenly realms. Read uh, Romans chapter 8 says that we've been glorified with Christ. Does the body you're in feel like a glorified body? Only answer if you're older than 20, okay? It's like, my back shouldn't feel like this when a glorified body. What are you talking about? Glorified body. It doesn't seem right. It's true. You're not yet fully experiencing it. You've got victory over sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But you still sin. It's already true. You're not yet experiencing it to its fullest. You live in this place, but your citizenship is not here. You're, you're not your own. This place is not your home. That you are a citizen of heaven. You belong to a different world, but you still live here. That's the already, not yet. There's two kingdoms in conflict. And so today, as we look at our passage of Scripture, Jesus tells us how to live in that. And so I just want you to ask the question, how do you live in the tension of our times? But I'm talking to believers, and I'm not just talking about political and racial and your calendar and your finances and a comparison to your neighbors and like all those tensions. I'm talking about... The tension of the already and the not yet. If you have your Bible, it's in John chapter 16 that we're looking at this today. John chapter 16. And uh, what's going on here, just as a reminder for those of you who've been with us, is that everything has stopped. This isn't Jesus' public ministry anymore. Everything's kind of hit a halt. It's not miracle, 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 brilliant teaching, amazing teaching, another miracle, walking on water, feeding 5,000, you know, all that. That's all slowed down. Now he's just with, it's an intimate and tender time in the Gospels. A lot of people turn here when they're, they're grieving. Because it's some of the most tender words in the Gospels are shared here because of the difficulty the disciples are going through. And it starts in, way back in John chapter 13 when Jesus was having his last supper with his 12 closest followers and he washes their feet. And he says, one of you is going to betray me. And then that guy leaves. His name's Judas. And then he's just with his 11 closest followers and he starts to tell them these words right before he's going to be arrested. He tells them they're all going to fall away. He tells them that, that he's leaving. My hour has come. He's out of here. Their dreams are shattered. They're going through a devastating moment. And he tells them, here's what you need to do. You need to abide in me. You need to remain in me. You're going to bear fruit in your life, but it's because you stay connected to me. And then he goes on and he starts to tell them, it's going to get even worse than what I've told you so far. There's going to come a time where people are going to kill you and they're going to think they're serving God. And so it's discouraging. They're at a difficult spot. And then he tells them, but it's to your advantage that I'm leaving you. And they're thinking, how is that even possible? And then last week what we talked about, he, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's not going to just come alongside you. He's going to live inside you. And so it's to an advantage to the church that the Holy Spirit is living inside of believers. What, what is that like? Imagine everybody who's not experienced that, to have God living inside of you. Do you know? You quench the Spirit, you fill with the Spirit, because we saw last week that he's, he's the helper, he's the Spirit of truth. He guides us into all truth, and that's where we ended last week, about how the Holy Spirit is our guide. If we're going to experience the life the way that God intended for us to experience it, it's by the Holy Spirit. And then look what he says in verse 16. A little while and you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So he's, telling, he's leaving. They're going to still be here. There's just tension. They're already not yet. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you'll see me. It's kind of like a riddle, the way it's being said here. Because I'm going to the Father. Verse 18. So they were saying, what does he mean, a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. At least they're honest with themselves here. and not, We don't get it. We don't know what's going on. And Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? And then he, he explains it in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to, into joy. And then he gives this analogy. Uh, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. 
But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So he's talking about joy here. He said rejoice or joy multiple times through these few verses, but you've got to admit, this is a confusing passage. He starts off with this little while language. A little while you'll see me, a little while you won't. Now you see me, now you don't. It sounds like he's inventing the hide-and-seek game or something in this thing. It's like this riddle that's being said through here. And then they're going, we don't know what you're talking about. And then Jesus reads their mind and goes, you don't know what I'm talking about. And they're like, exactly. And then he gives this analogy. Now Jesus is like the master teacher, right? Like he talks to farmers and he talks about throwing out seed. He talks to fishermen. He talks about casting a net. And here he gives this analogy about the pain of childbirth. But remember who he's talking to. It's 11 dudes. So ladies, there, let me just say something to you. Those of you, anybody here who's given birth, ladies, who's given birth, there's one thing your husband doesn't understand, and you're like, that is the understatement of forever. But I guarantee there's one thing he doesn't understand, it's the pain of childbirth. Amen? All the ladies should have been like, amen! Not amen, amen. It's foggy outside, amen. Are you with me? Come on. So this is a confusing passage. Like, he starts off with this riddle talk. And then he comes in with this analogy, you're like, but you're talking to 11, they don't know about childbirth, or they're just sitting there going, yep, yep, I know not to talk right now. 11, it's painful, then it's good, got it. But sandwiched in between the little while talk and all the confusion of that and the analogy, and you're going, why is he telling this to 11 guys, is verse 20. Verse 20 is the key to understanding this passage. Look at it with me. In verse 20, he said this, truly, truly, after he's explaining this a little while, and right before he sets up this analogy, let me tell you here, thus saith the Lord, amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world, oh, so you're different than the world, but you're staying in the world, but the world will rejoice, you will experience sorrow, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And you notice there that it doesn't say that your sorrow will be replaced by joy, He's actually going to transform your sorrow that you experience here while you're in this world into joy. Joy that can't be, if you go to the end of this passage, can't be taken away from you. And so there's going to be something supernatural that's taking place. But before you even get to that, he says the world's going to rejoice, but you, you're different. And what he's saying here to the believers, this is why this is a talk for followers of Jesus only today, is this. That you live in this world, but you're not of this world. And so this is the answer to our question, really, of the tension. How do we live in this tension? There's really one answer, and there's a million implications, but don't worry, I don't have a million points today. We don't have time for that. And so there's one answer. The one answer is this. The one answer is that how do we live in the tension of our times? We should live as followers of Jesus Christ with the greatest anticipation of the world to come. And so you want to put that in a point? Here's what We should have great anticipation because we're part of the kingdom of God. That we live in this kingdom, but we live where there's two kingdoms in conflict, and most people don't even see that. And because we're aware that everything that happens here is temporary, and that we actually live for the sake of eternity, that we should live with incredible anticipation because we're part of another kingdom, the kingdom of God. But here's the problem. Many, mo everybody who doesn't know Jesus lives this way, but many followers of Jesus live like this world is all there is. And I got an email this week I thought was so ironic. I started studying this passage and going through the outline for this Sunday and what we're going to preach this Sunday after last week's message. And I got an email from a member of our church. I'm just going to read you exactly what it said so you know I'm not making this stuff up. This person wrote to me and said, I saw this license plate last Sunday and thought, if ever there was a license plate destined to become a sermon illustration, it was this one. And we have a picture here. 
living for now. For those of you who are a little slow on reading license plates, welcome to Raleigh. Um, <laughs> this is what we do here. It's what these up to entertain you at every stoplight. And so this person had living for now on their license plate. Now let me just say this. If this is your car, uh, after I'm done praying, you can slide on out of here and beat everybody else out today. We're giving you permission to leave early. I asked the person, I said, what do you think the likelihood is that they went to our church? He's like, well, it's well after church. I don't know. They live in our city, but uh, we love you. Here's what, here's, what, here's what I want to acknowledge. If that's your license plate, at least you know. At least you know your life is all about right here, right now. Seize the moment. Get what you can, because this is all there is. Here's the sad part. There are a lot of followers of Jesus that live like that, but they think they're all good with eternity because they raise their hand at some Awana event. At some Christmas service. Like, I took care. Eternity's all set. Now it's all about now. And what we miss is how we live now impacts there. And all this is temporary. So think about that for a moment. Everything here is temporary. What's the context of our passage? It's sorrow. It's difficulty. It's pain. Your pain, your grieving, your sorrow, it's temporary. But how you respond is eternal. Think about your spiritual gifts. Everyone, when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, received a spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit, anointed with that to do what he wants you to do in your life circumstance. It's temporary, FYI. But how you use it is eternal. So your grief is temporary. How you respond is eternal. Your gifts are temporary. How you use them are eternal. Your money, temporary. Sorry. Doesn't matter which account you put them in. All temporary. But how you use them, how you use that money, it's eternal. Jesus talks about that. If you don't think that how we live here impacts eternity, he's talking about money in Matthew chapter 6. Let me read you this passage. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He's not telling you you shouldn't have a savings account. He's not telling you to be a fool. He's saying it's, more, it's about more than just this place. Verse 20 says this. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So I've heard... I heard one pastor say one time, it's not a sin to be rich. It's a sin to die rich because you didn't use those resources for the sake of eternity. They're just there. They're just sitting there now. And so here in this passage, he's talking about money, but it applies to everything, not just money. How about time? Here, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because we all have the same amount of it. And how we use it while we're here, it's all temporary. The time is temporary, but how we use it is eternal. If we get this, it changes everything about our lives. And so what you see here in this passage in verse 20, when he's revealing to them, you're in this world, you're not of this world, you are different. And I'm, there's more to come. That should change their perspective on everything they do in their life, and it should change ours. And so I told you there's some subpoints. Now this changes every area of our life, and so I could have like a million subpoints. I'm gonna just show you three of them to you from this passage today. We should live with incredible anticipation. We should have the greatest anticipation of anybody in this world because we know the best is yet to come. If you're not a follower of Jesus, it doesn't get any better than this. If you're a follower of Jesus, it doesn't get any worse than this. The best is yet to come, and that should change then how we live because we're part of another kingdom, the kingdom of God. The first thing it should change is our perspective. It gives us a new perspective on life. And it should here for the disciples too. You go back to that language that he uses in verse 16. Just look at that. A little while, and you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And then the verses after that, he's really unpacking that statement and just saying that statement in different ways, verse 17, 18, 19, going through there, until verse 20. And so the question becomes, what does he mean when he says a little while? Well, the disciples didn't know. 
And so they even acknowledge it here. It's like, we don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus is like, I know you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm going to read your mind tell you you don't know. And they're like, yeah, everybody knows we don't get it, okay? Could you just tell us? Well, for thousands of years since, people have been struggling with what Jesus was talking about there too. Because I was reading about this this week, and scholars debate, is he talking about the second coming? Is he talking about the resurrection? Is he talking about, and there's about five or six other main options. There's probably like a thousand options out there of different ideas people have come up with. But let's just think about this for a minute. It says a little while, so I doubt he's probably talking about something that's 2,000 plus years away. It's a little while, you're not going to see me any longer, probably talking about the cross. In a little while, you'll see me again. Probably talking about the resurrection. But don't just go with that because the pastor said it and he probably read more about it than I did. Look at the passage. What does the passage say about that? Well, go down here to verse 20. In verse 20, he says, what does he say is going to be different from you in the world? He says, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Well, what's coming up the world's going to rejoice about? It's the cross. Think about that and what's taken place up until this point. If, you, if you've read the Gospels before, you know what happens at, at one point is that Jesus comes into Jerusalem and they lay down palm branches, and we call that Palm Sunday now, and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Those same people, days later, are standing outside of Pilate's palace. We're going to get there in a couple weeks going through John. And, and Pilate, he's, you want to talk about tension? He's got some tension in his life. He works for Rome. He rules the Jewish people. The Jewish people want to kill Jesus. Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. And so he can't find anything wrong with Jesus. And so for sport, he has him flogged, mocked, beaten. He's all bloody. They bring him out there. He says, I, this guy hasn't done anything wrong, but there's a custom of the day that we release a prisoner to you. And so then Pilate thinks he's getting himself out of this deal. It's a no-brainer. There's this guy named Barabbas. He's a murderer, an insurrectionist. And then there's Jesus. I haven't found anything wrong with him. Who do you want me to let go? And the crowd chants, Barabbas. And then he says, well, what do you want me to do with this guy? It's Jesus, your king. And they chant, crucify him. The world rejoices. The disciples lament. But then a little while later, just three days later, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know every Sunday is Easter Sunday at Southbridge. Jesus Christ is risen. If he's not risen from the dead, then we, as followers of Jesus, who proclaim the resurrection, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, are the most hopeless people in the world. Because you can argue, oh, but we live moral lives and it's fine, even if there's nothing. No, you're saying stuff that's true about God that's not true about God. And so if the resurrection is not true, we're wasting our lives. And we're leading other people astray. But if the resurrection is true, that changes everything. And what Jesus is talking about here is that you, not only are you not of this world, you are part of an upside-down kingdom. And if you think about Jesus' teaching, everything he says goes counter this world. You think about it. If you want to live, you got to die. You want to save your life, you got to lose your life. What does this world say? You're living for now. Get what you can get. you got to get yours. you got to take care of you. Doesn't, doesn't realizing all this is temporary change all that? What does Jesus say? We talk about a lot of times our vision as a church is we're going to be a city on a hill, that lives are going to be so transformed that people would see our lives and that they would glorify our Father who's in heaven. They would realize there's something different. But do you know what leads up to that? It's in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. It's Jesus' sermon. You know how he introduces his sermon? Happy are the people who are poor in spirit. Does that sound different? Hey, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Does that sound different? Like everything about Jesus' teaching and kingdom is opposite of this world. So how can you say you're a follower of Jesus and then live just like this world? It doesn't line up. 
And then even just take the Christmas story, for example. I know some of you, I see a couple Bridge Kids shirts here, and you're just teaching uh, the, the, our children about Jesus' birth. I understand that. I'm not trying to condemn you if you taught it this way. But a lot of times, the way that we teach this story is super sterilized version of the Christmas story. You know what I'm talking about? Like the petting zoo animals are all there and the sheep have had their hair curled because it's Christmas and everybody's dressed nice and so they come in and, and you know, the, the, some wise men got their bathrobes on and they're looking real sharp and, and there's this family and they're just kind of sweetly holding this baby and they're so happy about it. Have you read the Bible? Like that whole thing is controversial. She's pregnant, she's not married. There's controversy that starts with this whole deal. They're outside it, there's nowhere for this kid. Nobody wants this child to be born in their place. And then, and then, do you know what happens? Talk about a revolutionary. They kill all the babies that are in the town where he's born that are two years and under. Now, if I told you, hey, all your kids, if you're part of this church, all your kids that are two and under, they're going to be killed today, and it's because of Jesus. You wouldn't go, what a sweet story. Like, it, it's the sign that there's two kingdoms in conflict. It's King Herod king of that world, realizes there's a king that's threatening his world. We live in a time where there's kingdoms. You want to know why there's tension? There's kingdoms in conflict. Do you want to know why you never feel like your job's going to satisfy you? Why you never feel like you're in the right place? Why you always wonder, maybe it's not this marriage. Maybe it's this thing. Maybe if I just had a new wardrobe. Maybe if the... You weren't made for this place. This place is not your home. None of that's ever... It's the attention of the already and the not yet and you're part of a kingdom that's an upside-down kingdom. Here's the problem. We live our lives a lot of times like a roller coaster ride and I don't mean the ups and downs of life. How many of you here have ever ridden a roller coaster before? Raise your hand. And how many of you here would never raise your hand if I asked you to raise your hand? Gotcha. There you go. <laughs> I know some of you, you just would never raise your hand. Your hearts are hard. We'll just pray about that. I'm just kidding. Some of you didn't raise your hand. You're smarter than the rest of us. The rest of us have ridden a roller coaster. And so you know what this is like. You go to an amusement park, whichever amusement park it is, and you pick your coaster, whichever one it is, for whatever reason. It's the most exciting. It's the tallest. It's the fastest. It'll cause the least pain to your back when you're done. Like for whatever reason, depends on your stage of life, how you pick the roller coaster, but you pick it. And then simultaneously to you picking it, everyone else in the park picked the same one, right? And that kind of how that happens. And then you go and you get in line. Have you been through those stanchions before? And you walk through the line, and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, so you're not judging anybody. I might be, but you can confess your sin in that moment. And you're walking past the same people over and over again, and here comes that kid, and you're thinking, if I grabbed him and threw him here and slipped there, they probably wouldn't even notice. That saved me 15 minutes. But you keep walking through the line, and it's getting hotter outside. Like, you got in line, it was like 90 degrees outside. Now it feels like it's about 110 degrees outside, and you're all sticky. But it's not a big deal, because here you can see the ending coming, and you've only been waiting for an hour. And you get there, and then you look, and there's a whole other room of stanchions, just like the ones you just went through. You had that? And if you're like me, you're going, that took an hour. That's going to take at least another hour. Is there another room around the corner from that? Might be in line for two or three hours, but then you get on the ride and it's awesome. And it twirls you around and it goes up to one spot and then comes backwards and there's like a bear that comes out and it looks amazing. And the music you like and boom, and then it's over. It's like 30 seconds. But it was amazing 30 seconds. You waited in line for two or three hours for 30 seconds of pleasure. And that's how many of us Live our lives. So you work your job. 50 weeks a year, so you better get the most out of those two weeks of vacation. Or, or you plan your whole life for your, your retirement, and you live decades, 30 years you work, 40 years, however long you have to work. And then you get what, three, five, maybe 10 years of like walking on the beach and riding horses in the Outer Bank or playing softball, whatever it is you desire to do at your retirement time. And so you, it's all this preparation for a little bit of pleasure. And what Jesus says in this passage of Scripture is like a reverse roller coaster. 
it flips the script. You're going to live here, what, 70, maybe 80 years? And then eternity of joy that can't be taken from you. Do you, see, do you see how different our perspective on life should be than, the, than living for now? And it changes everything. It changes everything from the, mon- the most mundane. Why did you get out of bed today? It changes that. It changes you, if you serve here at this church. It changes how you use your gift. You think about different things that happen here at this church and why it's happening. Why would someone serve on the parking lot team? Because they like to be yelled at? No. Like if you serve on the parking lot team, I hope, thank you. You're one of the best teams in our church. But here's the deal. I hope it's not because you want to solve a logistical nightmare, right? Like, I'll get this car out there and get that one there and this one. Oh, no, that's an SUV. But do you know why? Do you know why they serve? I know this is why they serve. I'm talking to some of them. Because they want you to have an encounter with the living God. And so they're there to greet you. They want, they want you to know, kind of like the hospitality team, they want you to know you've been thought of. We've prepared for you. And it's not just because we want you to have a drink of coffee so you stay awake through Scott's sermon because, man, that needed some a little pep up today. That's not why. I hope. Uh, the reason why, because they want you to encounter the living God and your life to be changed for eternity. Why do you, those of you who host small groups at your home, why do you do that? The church asked you. I've actually heard a small group leader say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I just did it because the church asked me to do it. Yeah, you shouldn't be doing it. But if you want to help equip the saints for the works of service so they can live their lives for eternity and have an impact for eternity, why do you go to your job, not just at this church? Why do you get up and go to your job? Is it just to save for retirement? Maybe you own your own business and you're building up equity. Whatever, whatever. Why do you do that? Do you know what? Do you think God's not sovereign enough to have known what you were going to be interested in when you were 12 or 18 when you picked a major or when you decided to change careers at 30 and he's going to put you with the exact people he wants you to be with, not so you can have three years of playing on the beach and riding horses, but so you can populate heaven by living a life that demonstrates a different kingdom, that, that you could be bold and sharing in your faith, that you could live out what it is to have a peace that they could never fathom and never understand. See, that's, that's what this shows. Living in anticipation is not like, it's gonna be great one day. Sure stinks right now. No, the fact that one day is coming and how you live now, how you invest your time, your talent, your grief, all that impacts there should change everything about here. Let me read you this quote by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. And then here's a catchy way to remember this. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. In other words, live for now, it doesn't work for anybody. Believer or not believer, you lose the chasing after the wind, the book of Ecclesiastes. But come after Christ, you get everything. You want to save your life? Lose your life. Follow me? Deny yourself. It's all Jesus' teaching is what he's talking about here. But, but in here, in our context here, he's talking about in the midst of sorrow. What does it look like to have an eternal perspective in the midst of sorrow? Well, let me tell you the example to look to. We don't have time to unpack his whole life, but the Apostle Paul. If you read the Apostle Paul, go in and just put this in your notes right now if you're going to study this later. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 outlines some of the suffering he experienced. I bet it's more than you've ever experienced. Flogged five times for his faith. Stoned, left for dead. I spent a night at sea because of following Christ. People after him wanting to kill him. But do you know what he says in that same book in 2 Corinthians? 
He says this light and momentary affliction. Sometimes I go through stuff and I think about a verse like that and I'm thinking, it doesn't seem light and it doesn't seem momentary. But he, said, he realizes it's all temporary, but he says it's producing. So God's actually using that. It's producing for us. What did our passage say? He says, your sorrow will turn to joy. It's not, just, it's not you'll forget about the sorrow. I'm actually going to take the sorrow and transform it into your joy, a joy that cannot be taken from you. Look forward to that. He says that, that, that those things are going to be transformed to a weight of eternal glory, Paul says. And so how you su- what you suffer, temporary. How you suffer, how you respond, eternal. And sometimes God takes suffering to transform our perspective on these things. I was reading this week's story of Randy Elkhorn. I don't know if you've heard of Randy Elkhorn or not. He wrote a famous book called The Treasure Principle, and it was based on some tragedy he experienced in his life. If you guys heard that story, some of you nod your heads. If you heard that story, some of you heard that story. It helps me know how long I need to set this up because it's not that story that, that has struck me this week. But just to give you the, the background, the, what he's well known for by some Christians is that about 30 years ago, uh, he was pastoring a really large church, and God started to burden his heart for the unborn. And he was with a group of people that were doing a peaceful protest of an abortion clinic, and they were arrested, and then ended up having a court judgment, the largest judgment ever uh, that a court had given to someone that was having a peaceful protest of an abortion clinic, $8.2 million against him. And they were going to garnish his wages from his church, and uh, by God's grace, he had just paid his house off, and he figured out a way with his family to take this devastating news and begin to live different. And so he realized if he made any more than minimum wage, he'd have to give money to the judgment, which then go to an abortion clinic, so he'd be funding an abortion clinic. And he didn't know how to not do that. And so he said to the, the elders of his church, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work for the church for minimum wage. Changed his life, how he lived. But he was also an author, and so he'd receive money from the books that he, he wrote. And he divested himself of all the royalties of that and decided what we'll do with the book royalties is we're going to give them away, and we're going to give them to kingdom causes, things that make a difference for eternity. And he said, he, he said he thinks that as we, give, as we give them money to the things that are near and dear to God's heart, it's like all of a sudden my book started selling way more. <laughs> and he said, to date, they've given away about $6 million for kingdom causes. He said what seemed a devastating thing in his life, God actually used to have an impact for eternity, not only in his family's life, but in other people's lives as he's given this, this money away. But that's not what struck me. I was reading this interview that he was doing. And this guy asked him a great question. He said, you know, we, we're familiar with that story. Have you had any other defining moments in your ministry, though? And he said, yeah. And he immediately started to talk about when his mom was dying. He said, when my mom was dying, I'd go over to her house every day, and I'd read her the same two chapters of Scripture every day, the last two chapters in the book of Revelation. And he said, but what struck me was something I'd never heard in Bible college, never heard in seminary, I never really heard Christians talk about, because Christians always talk about heaven like it's like this mystical, like floating around kind of thing. He said, but what I'd read about in the Bible was a real place with real people living on a real earth, a resurrected kingdom of resurrected people living all centered on Christ. And he said, I started to realize how real this is. And ever since then, that was about 30 years ago too, he said, I wrote a book on heaven. I've been trying to point people to have an eternal perspective on how they live here. And the people who get this, sometimes it takes tragedy, but the people who get this, it changes their perspective on everything that happens in this world. But it doesn't just change perspective. It also changes in the next part of the passage, if we're just going to walk through verse by verse, it talks about changing the way that we pray. But I'm going to skip over verse 23 and 24, really, and the reason why is this, because it was already talked about in chapter 14 and chapter 15, and it's been being repeated over and over about praying in Jesus' name. Let me give you the high level of that. 
praying in Jesus' name is not something you tag on to the end of a prayer so that Jesus can be like your genie. What he's talking about here is that as you pray, God will transform your heart. And he transforms you so that you pray. You start to pray his will. That's what it is to pray in Jesus' name. You pray the things that Jesus would pray if he were here praying those things. And what ends up happening is you start to pray about God's glory. He'll answer those prayers. And then you get joy. And that's what this passage adds that the other passages haven't said yet, that you get joy, that your joy may be full. Let me start reading in verse 25. And what we're going to get to here is ultimately in verse 33. And what it changes, it not only changes our, our prayers, it not only changes our perspective, but it changes our peace. It gives us, it should give us not just a new perspective, it should give us an unmistakable peace. And so those of you who are taking notes, that's our second subpoint. But let me start reading in verse 25. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. This is Jesus speaking here. The hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. I don't have to ask on the Father on your behalf. You go right to the Father. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And then verse 28 is interesting because Jesus' whole ministry is wrapped up in this one simple verse. Look at it. I came from the Father. There's the incarnation. I've come into the world. There's his humiliation, eventually the cross. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation. And then look at what his disciples say next. This blows my mind. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Yep, he just said he was going to do that. Got it. Verse 30. Now we know that you know all things. Pause. How do you know that he knows all things unless you know all things? You don't know. Unless you, you don't know what he knows unless you know what you know. That he, they don't get it, but they think they get it. And they make it evident as they keep going further. He says this. Now we know that you know all things and do not need any, like he needed people to question him. You do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Now this next verse is gold. <laughs> because... I think Jesus is being sarcastic, which is incredible and justifies a lot of things that I do in my life. <laughs> he says this, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Now there's no uh, exclamation points or question marks or anything like that in the Greek text, but here the ESV, they, I think they believe that it's sarcastic as well, and that's why they put it as a question. Now, if you have the NIV, there's an exclamation point. Now you believe, like it's a statement. But here they've got, I think the ESV's got it on this one. Do you now believe? Now, we know they don't, have, they don't believe because they, they don't even understand anything that's about to happen in minutes. And so they don't get it. They think they get it. And so I think Jesus, it's almost like, so that whole walking on water thing didn't do it for you, huh? But now I said in one verse, simple minutes, now you get it. <laughs> I don't know if he's mocking them. I would have been, but... Like, yeah, that pig thing. Did you read that? Have you ever read the pig story? There's a whole legion of demons. Nobody can control the demons. Jesus cast them into some pigs. They run off a cliff. I think that's funny too, by the way. And, and, but it's like, yeah, you saw the pigs. That didn't do it for you. But now, verse 28, now you get it. Oh, raising your friend Lazarus from the dead. You didn't get it when then. But now you get it? Do you believe now? And they're sitting there thinking, we think so. <laughs> and then look what Jesus says in the next verse. Let me tell you what you don't get. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You're all going to desert me. Like you just said, you're all, now, now you got it all figured out? You don't have it all figured out. But let me tell you what you're getting a glimpse of here that we'll see crystal clear when we get to the end of the Gospels. His grace. 
these are the men he's going to use to change the world, and he's already aware. It's not like God was up in heaven going, I was going to use those guys, but man, they blew it. He's going, you're all going to desert me, but you're my plan to change the world. It's God's grace. That should be great comfort for any of you who've blown out. You're all going to scatter to his own home and will leave me alone, but I'm not alone, for the Father's with me. And then verse 33 is where I'm talking about peace from. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Now in me you have peace. Now in the world you'll have tribulation. In the world you will have, here's a promise most of us don't claim, you will have trouble. And here's a command, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And so what Jesus gives us is an unmistakable peace. Here's why it's an unmistakable peace. Because it's like that peace that the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4. A peace that surpasses all understanding. Many of us have prayed that for people. We know somebody who's going through really tough stuff. We pray that they have a peace that surpasses all understanding. But we don't even know what we're talking about. It's just like peace that doesn't make sense in this world. Yeah, that's because Jesus gives a different kind of peace than this world can offer. In fact, if you read John chapter 14, he says, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. And sometimes we read that, at least I do, and I think it's like, Hey, the world gives like they're going to give it and they're going to take it away. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a qualitative peace. I give a different kind of peace than the world can give you. What can the world offer as far as peace? Because everybody can relate to tension. You don't have to be a Christian to relate to tension that I was talking about at the beginning. The racial tension, the political tension, calendar tension, financial tensions, like all the tensions that are going on in this world. Everybody's got it. you got boss tension. you got two coworkers. They both want power. There's tension. There's all kinds of, you read your Facebook page and somebody else goes on a vacation. You're mad at them. There's tension. They don't know there's tension, but you've got tension. It's all kinds of tension, right? And so what do you do to fix that? Escape, numb it. You gotta remove the tension. Somehow, you gotta get more vacation time. Maybe you should retire early. That's the best the world can offer. Maybe you have some casual sex. Buy a new wardrobe. Because let's numb the pain. Maybe you need some meds. That's the best that can be offered. But did you see here what kind of peace Jesus is talking about? Did you see how close the word peace is to tribulation? I said these things to you that in me, you're not of this world. In me, you may have peace. Only This is only for believers. Only a believer can experience this. In this world, you will simultaneously, while you're experiencing right now, you can also experience peace. While you're experiencing the tribulation in this world, you will have tribulation. It's a promise. If you're not experiencing now, you will. I'm sorry. But you can have peace. But think about Jesus even talking about peace right here. Isn't this incredible? I've said these things to you. I'm talking to you that in me, you may have peace. They don't know what's going on. Jesus knows. Jesus is the only one that's got this all figured out here. He knows that in moments, he's going to be arrested after being betrayed by a friend, abandoned by all these guys. He's just said that. Beaten, mocked, flogged, crucified. They're not going to die. Not yet. And Jesus, if if you were in Jesus' spot, what would you do? If I was in Jesus' spot, you know what I'd be saying to these guys? Y'all are freaking out. I'm the one that's about to die. Like, comfort me. Help me. Isn't this amazing about Jesus that in this moment when he's about to be crucified, he's concerned about their peace? And he's concerned about your peace? In this world, you'll have trouble. He's told them there's going to come a time where people are going to kill you and they're going to think they're serving God, but you can have peace. How could you have peace like that? Because that's different than this world. And here's what peace is rooted in. Here's how you actually experience it. It's rooted in trust. It's like Jesus. So he only does what the Father tells him to do, John chapter 8, verse 29. How can he experience the kind of peace that he's experienced? No one's taking his life in moments. He's laying it down. He could come down from the cross. He chooses not to. 
He's, a, he's trusting the Father. And what happens for us as followers of Jesus is that as we trust God, the peace of God comes over us. That's the peace that suppresses understanding. That in a circumstance where everybody in this world would go, you just need to escape, you need to numb this, you need to get out of this, you can be in it and still have the peace of God in your life. And how do you get to that spot? You've got to get to the spot where you realize that Jesus is trustworthy, that you can trust him, even when things aren't going the way that you want them to go, and your dreams have been shattered, and life's falling apart, and you lose a loved one, and the doctor calls, and all that stuff happens, and it doesn't mean you think it's awesome, but you trust God that he's at work in it, and he's going to use it ultimately for your good and for his glory. And so for me, I've shared with you as a church before my own struggles with anxiety and difficulties that I've had with all of that experience. Let me tell you one of the good things that God has done. It's been what's happened in this church over the last couple of years. Where if you, if you were here two years ago and you remember when our, our property was being bought, we weren't trying to sell it. I was not happy about that, just FYI. And then we had to leave the movie theater where we were meeting. That was kind of discouraging. If one of you had walked up to me at that time and said, but God's got a better plan, I'd probably just smacked you in the face. I mean, I'm a shepherd, and sometimes a sheep needs to be, at any rate, no, that's not. I would have wanted to. I wouldn't have actually smacked you in the face. I hope the Spirit would have taken over in that moment, but I would have wanted to. But living through that and the ups and downs of that and the turns of that over the last couple of years, I remember coming to a passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 16. We weren't trying to do something wrong and trying to build on, on that property. And think about what Paul was doing. In Acts chapter 16, he's trying to go to Asia to share the gospel, and God says no. And then he tries to go to Bithynia to share the gospel, and God says no. And eventually God then calls him into Macedonia. And what I realize is that, that God uses his no's to get us to his yes. Amen. And so then you start thinking about the things that have happened in your own life. You can probably overlap some of this. And so what happened to me was I'm driving to this campus. So what, in the meantime, what's God done? You know, I'm, I'm discouraged. It's not going the way that I want it to go. He's still saving people. He's still changing people's lives. He has a whole other church join our church. Gives us a campus that's debt-free. You know what? His plan is better than my plan, just FYI. I'm driving over to the campus about two or three weeks ago, and I'm thinking to myself about that thought of just, if someone had come to me and said, God has a better plan, I'd have smacked him. I wasn't thinking about any individual person, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> One, it's cliche. Two, I didn't want to hear it at the moment. What thing God overwhelmed me was, isn't my plan better than your plan? That now you're, you're driving down to this place and another church and what I've done there and I had a plan for them and then what I'm doing in this church and that you would end up moving into a place and there's not the financial stresses there would have been building your own place and that I've got a plan. Can you can just, you, not only can you trust me through what you've been through, you can trust me through what's coming because days are good right here at our church right now, but their difficulty will come. This promise is for all of us. He's still, we can still have peace when the next difficult thing comes because we've seen what he's done this time. And the same in your individual lives. Sarah, she shared when she was leading worship, you know, there's times God's done so many amazing things in my life, but there's times when I feel like I can't endure. But then you're reminded of who he is. That's the psalm that we read in the song that we sang. And so in your own life, why can you have peace? Because you trust. And you trust because he's trustworthy. And he gives the peace. You don't go, I'm, now I'm going to have peace. That won't work. That's like going, I don't itch on my head anywhere. Just start thinking that. And everybody will start, that doesn't work. So when you trust in him. But not only does he give a new peace, an unmistakable peace, he also gives a bold courage. That's also in verse 33. He gives us a bold courage to live by faith. Look at what he says. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. That's courage, by the way. That could be translated bold courage. We see it in a couple other places. John only uses it here. It's the only place in the Gospel of John that the words are used for take heart, bold, have bold courage. 
It's used in the Gospels, though, in Mark chapter 6 and verse 50, when the disciples are in a storm and they're sitting in a boat and they're all panicking because they see what they think is a ghost floating on the water. It's Jesus walking on water. And I don't know if he was like planning on sneaking by them and then they saw him or what, but he goes, take heart. Have, have courage, it's me. Or in Acts chapter 23, the word used. In Acts chapter 23, the apostle Paul thinks he's gonna be killed for sharing his faith. His enemies are surrounding him. Jesus appears to him and says, take heart, be bold, because you got me. Here he said, be bold. you have bold courage, but here's the key to understanding this verse and why you can have bold courage, because he doesn't say, it's in you. You got this. You will overcome. He doesn't say that. He says, you have courage because I have overcome the world. Has he overcome the world? He has, but not yet, which makes this. You know, I love my Savior for lots of different reasons. I really love his sarcasm a couple verses ago. This is even better than the sarcasm. What about some boldness by Jesus here? He hasn't gone to the cross yet. He's speaking about things that have not yet happened as though they are. He's got all the Satan, all the demons, all powers of darkness coming against him. When he dies on the cross, it looks like he's defeated. You want to see some trash talk, those of you who like sports? Jesus is calling his shot right here. It's as if it is though. I have overcome the world. And then he's going to die a little while. And you'll see me no longer. And he's going to raise from the dead. And they're going to go, now we believe. We don't know if we believe at all, but we believe more. Because the resurrection reverses everything. Amen? And so Jesus has overcome the world. And you know what the Bible says also? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's the Holy Spirit that we were talking about last week. It's the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. You have the power to overcome because Jesus overcame at the cross. Do you fully experience all that? Not yet, but it's already true. There is victory over sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because that condemnation was poured out at the cross of Christ because he was paying for sin. Do you know what sin is? Sin is when we rebel against God. And so when we do what is right in our own eyes, it's what's happening around the world at this very second by everybody who doesn't know Jesus. And you know what, as believers, we do it sometimes too. But we can cast that upon the cross of Christ because he overcame. So we can be bold because he overcame. What does it mean he overcame the world? That means he overcame Satan. He overcame sin. He overcame death. And you have victory. Jesus Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. And so you can be bold. So we should be the boldest people. Of all people, because what's the worst thing that can happen to you when you're living out by faith? They're going to kill you? You get to go be with Jesus. That's a win, by the way. If, if, if you really believe that you're part of God's kingdom and there's another kingdom and everything that happens here is temporary, but what you do here impacts there. And so this changes everything, changes every area of our lives. But let me ask you this. If God were going to just change one area of your life in light of this truth, what area of your life would it be today? Let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak that to us right now. Maybe it's an area of finances. Maybe it has to do with your grief. Maybe it has to do with your time. Maybe it has to do with your talent. Maybe it has the way, the way you view your job. Maybe it's your courage and the way you share your faith. Maybe it's the peace that you have as you live in this world that's filled with tension and sleepless nights and bad eating and, and all, all kinds of visits to the doctor. Maybe, maybe it's the peace that God wants you to have to experience that other people in this world are not experiencing. Let's ask him. Father, we come before you right now, and um, I believe I can pray on behalf of our church as a whole that we believe that there's more to this place than just this place. 
And sure, our work, the battles we face are not battles against flesh and blood, but against angels and principalities and You have overcome the world. We can have peace because we have peace in you. We have a new perspective because you've shown us. It's like you've let us see something everyone else doesn't see. But to live for now would be such a wasted life to live 20, 30, 40 years so we can have three or four or five years or, or to live the, uh, this year so we can have a couple weeks. And You're in all of it. And you want us to use all of it to ultimately impact eternity and that you're going to give us a joy that can never be taken from us. We're going to get to be with your son, Jesus. It's the ultimate gift. Now, will you transform some of us? You need to change what we see. There might be somebody here, you need to open their eyes to their sin and that they are separated from you. Maybe at the beginning when I said, you know, if you're not a believer, you thought I was talking to somebody else, but it's actually talking to you. <coughs> and you need to trust Christ as your Savior. Do you know you can do that in this moment? You don't have to do some ritual in your life. You don't have to clean up your act and stop sinning so much. You don't have to start attending more regularly. What you do is you you cast your sins on the cross of Christ. You believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead to pay for those sins and and you ask him to be your savior and you can do that right now. And if you want to do that right now, I encourage you to take a moment and do that. And Father, I pray that, that in the name of your son, by the power of your spirit, you would convict hearts of people who need to trust you as savior. And Father, I pray that your spirit would just move up and down the aisles and in and out of the rows and start speaking to people about what is it that you want to change in their lives in light of eternity, the ways that they're not living in light of eternity, maybe with time, maybe in their parenting, maybe in their relationships, maybe in their suffering, maybe with their money. God, however you want to do that, will you do that? Will you convict? Will you poke? Will you prod? And I just encourage you, if the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart, don't let it just be a moment right now. But what's going to change? How are you going to respond? How will you live different? How will you trust him or seek him for peace or step out on faith for him or whatever does he speak into your heart? How are you going to respond? Don't let this moment just go by. Father, will you continue to speak to our hearts, to our minds, into our lives and transform us with your truth? Your spirit is the spirit of truth. Will you guide us into all truth? In Jesus' name I pray.